Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Morgana. Tonight, we're welcoming Dr. C.S. Matthews, the author of Mysterious Beauty, Living with the Paranormal in the Hudson Valley, also known as Professor Wham. Good evening, Professor Wham. Howdy. Well, it's good to have you here. I had to have you after I read your book. I'd been following you online and I loved your writing, but this book is, is incredibly interesting because what she's done is she has compiled a sort of history of strange phenomena in the Hudson River Valley over the intensive part is over a period of 40 years, but she also goes back into prehistory with oral history from the Native American tribes that were there. And as far back as she can get with uh, colonized history as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But she also has first person accounts of people who've lived there, grown up there their whole lives. And it's, it sounds like it should be boring. It sounds like it should be information dense, which it is. And a lot of people get scared off by information dense stuff, but it's not boring at all. It's very, very personably written so that you, you just keep, I, I stayed up late the like first night I, I read it, I kept wanting to put it down and go to sleep and, and I just couldn't. So I read about half of the book in one day. So it's really, really a lot of fun to read. So what possessed you though? to write a book like this, did you have, was, what was your idea? Well, it was, it was inspired by a, a, an unfortunate encounter that I had, and not only I, but several other people who are investigators in the Hudson Valley had with a television production crew uh, from uh, the New York City, um, you know, the city, which is about two hours, two and a half hours south where I live. And I'm not going to mention who they are because they are actually a fairly well-known independent television production um, organization. Uh, But apparently somebody there had gotten a hair up their butt that they wanted to do some kind of a a pilot show about uh, uh, paranormal stuff in the Hudson Valley. And uh, they were going to, uh, at least according to what they told me, is that they were going to uh, pitch it to like the Discovery Channel or the Travel Channel or something like that. And the problem was, was that they were not being honest with me or the other investigators. And they wanted us to do all their work for them. Um, they wanted us to sign waivers, which would give them sole proprietary rights over all of our research. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
when and the and I contacted Linda Zimmerman, who is a very well-known um, UFO investigator in the Hudson Valley, and I actually interview her. She's the first interview in the book, in the interview section, and I because I had said to them, I had said have you contacted Linda? Cause they seem to be mostly interested in UFO abduction stories, which from my perspective is the least interesting thing. I mean, because everybody's, in, you know, all media is interested in that because they want to, they want, they're not interested in what that's really about. They're interested in the wackos that they can get to come out around that. Right. Um, and so to sensationalize it. So, I asked them, you know, have you talked to Linda? And they were like, oh, no, we haven't talked to Linda. Um, Maybe you could contact her for us because we haven't been able to reach her. So I did contact her and found out that that they had contacted her and she she had told them to get lost. (laughs) So they basically had lied to me about that um and and on top of that you know they they wanted they wanted me to just like you know turn over people that i've interviewed to them and it was just you know anybody who's done this work for a long time knows that um paranormal events or whatever they are uh are sometimes some of the most significant events that occur in a person's life uh, they can be life-changing, whether positively or negatively. And they're very personal a lot of times, you know, um, and or the, or the context sometimes in which they occur is personal. So I'm not just going to hand people over to, to people who are obviously only interested in profit and, you know, whatever. So anyway, I was talking to Linda about this, and Linda said, you know, somebody just needs to write a survey book about all the stuff that happens here. Uh, and I, I sat down and thought about it for a little bit and realized that I had enough material to begin that process. Um, so I did. And that's, that's, this is the result of that. Um, and like I say in the book, it's not complete. I consider the book to be sort of a living document. Obviously, as soon as I got finished with it, I found new stuff, (laughs) things changed, (laughs) you know, um, uh, you know, like, for example, a lot, a lot of things changed since the pandemic, you know, the book came yeah. out in, in the fall of 2019. And obviously, by 2020, the spring of in six months, every a lot of stuff had changed. And so some of the people that I talk about, um, they're still there. I mean, everybody that I talk about is still there or still here, I guess, because I'm actually here too. But um, a lot of our circumstances have changed Mm -hmm. from the time period um, when I wrote. And so at some point, I'm going to have to update it and then, you know, do probably have more profiles, a larger profile section, and then do addendums to talk about what's happened in people's lives since the first book was written. Because in some cases, their lives have changed rather significantly just in the last 18 months. So I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. Um, Strange experiences like you outline in this book um, seem made to change people as if that, that is part of the purpose is to change people. Well, and just the pandemic has changed people well, too. Well, yeah, you know, that too. I mean, that, but yeah, I mean, it's 
you know, in, uh, in the case of the uh, Gail Beatty, who's the Bigfoot investigator, she's, you know, she's had a lot of, uh, her family has gone through a lot of stuff um, in the last year, and she's gone through a lot of personal stuff. So it's it's been very difficult for her to keep up with um, the investigations. Now, there are still things that have been happening. In fact, the last time that I talked to her, um, she was telling me about a, ser- a woman who is having a series of uh, cryptid experiences not too far from where I live, actually. It's maybe about 12 miles from my house. And, uh, and, and, and the woman has had, some, has had some pretty interesting photographs that she's taken about some stuff. Uh, I mean, you know, these are always fuzzy, but they're kind of interesting. You know, it's like they're, mm-hmm. they're obviously of something. And um, so there's always something going on. It's just that it shifts and changes yeah. constantly, you know, sometimes yeah. mostly in the same areas, but, you know, it, it, right. it, you know, it may, and that's kind of what the book talks about. You know, it's like there'll be Bigfoot stuff in one area um, and then UFO stuff in another area at the same time, and then it'll just sort of move around the valley in different ways, you know. And so there may be, you know, Bigfoot sightings may fall off, but in another part of the valley, people are starting to see UFOs. You know, it's just, and then the, and then there's always ghost stuff somewhere, constantly. I mean, constantly there's ghost stuff. Just I I hear about more stuff literally every day. Um, it, it, I don't even. It, there's too much stuff to even investigate. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm personally in contact with like four different groups, ghost hunting groups, like just that they're just around me, like in a 30 mile radius, and they have more stuff to deal with than they even have time for, for their for their work and stuff. So, I'm not surprised. Um, from I like the way that you describe it as a window area in the Mm. mode that Mm -hmm. there's a cyclical nature to it, Mm -hmm. but it is within the same general area, you know, the same sort of radius that these things happen over and over, over periods of time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes as, as you said, the energy rises and there's more of one thing over here and another thing over there. And then sometimes it ebbs down. And uh, that's kind of what happened happens here in Athens is there are times when there's way more activity and you get reports and people seeing things and then it will quiet down. Uh, part of the reason that we started doing a podcast in the first place is because Morgana and I noticed that our friends and neighbors and, and, you know, people around town were reporting more strange phenomena. Um, We had people with ghost sightings more often. We had UFO sightings more often. Flocks of birds flying into the wall of somebody's house out of Mm. nowhere. Um. There were some poltergeist activities in yeah. some people's houses. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I hadn't, it had been pretty quiet in Athens for the past few years until last fall or 2019, fall of 2019. Mm-hmm. That's when we saw it start to ramp up. And uh, 
it, you know, we actually had UFO sightings ourselves, which we have not had for years. And they started and haven't really quite gone away. So it seems to be an ongoing thing now. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of kind of weird, but much like you describe with um, anomalous light phenomena. So that's to me, that's the little lights that are seen closer to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then UFOs and structured craft and mm-hmm. there's Bigfoot type creatures and ghosts everywhere. Um, that's kind of Athens does that too. And I wondered if there was any sort of, you know, I'm trying to figure out why the energy would be similar. I think that our, our radius for it is smaller than yours though. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, when I talk about the Hudson Valley, I'm talking about a much larger oh, area. Yeah. Um, and it, and it embraces, it embraces certain parts of New York city um, actually, and certain parts of, uh, of, of uh, New Jersey, uh, which is mm-hmm. uh, which uh, it, the southern part of it is part of the Hudson Valley, and and also um, the Catskills, which goes back a little bit further, uh, up until um, now the Hudson Valley itself, um, the valley ends uh, ends just north of Albany, but the Hudson River continues up into the Adirondacks, and and um, there, there is stuff obviously that happens in the Adirondacks that are connected, you know, I mean, that are either connected to the Hudson river or not. Um, but so I, I try to focus mostly in the Valley and to to Albany. I do, when I talk about the, um, uh, some of the cryptid stuff, I do talk a little bit about, um, some stuff that happened a little bit further North and to the East of the Hudson Valley proper. But the reason I do that is because in time, uh, there seems to be an interesting link between what is happening up there. Um, that's the Whitehall monster um, right. um, sightings in the 1970s. There seems to be something that's a connection between what's happening there and then what begins to happen um, further down in the Hudson Valley um, in, a, in a fairly short period of time uh, in a, in a place that's called Kinderhook and, um, and actually as the crow flies, it's not that far. It's just, mm-hmm. if you try to drive it, it's, it's, right. it's far, but, but as the crow flies, it's probably less than 80 miles. So. Yeah. We, yeah. we understand about having to drive and it taking forever because Appalachia and, and stupid windy roads, because we have hills and mountains and all kinds of foolishness. Mm-hmm. In between right. us, and I really wish we could fly because it would be so much easier. But no, well, uh, <laughs> I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of flight. So you know, <laughs> I I am one of those people that thinks that you know if we were to meant to fly, we would we would be should be being shot out of cannons. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm not. I, I I will get on an airplane if I have to, but I'm I've never been a big fan of it. So. I, I like my feet on the ground. <laughs> Do you consider the sort of entities, I think, self-contained phenomena as sort of guardians or messengers almost of the land? 
Well, I know that um, at least as I talk about it in the in one of the first chapters, I know that certainly um, the, the indigenous peoples that um, actually I, I can't say that lived here. They many of them still do live here. Many of them never mm-hmm. left. Um, that they certainly regarded some of them, uh, some of the reported entities as being possibly um, guardians of the land. I mean, I say that because, and I talk about this in the book, I say that because, you know, we we as settler European types, we're going to experience whatever those things might be differently. We're going to have a different set of relationships uh, with those energies and entities than, say, the Muncie people did or the Haudenosaunee did or do, I should say. Um, and so they're going to identify with them differently and, and, and see them differently. Uh, so for them, there really are no paranormal events. Uh, there are, there are a continuum of, of, of relationships that, that humans have with different, um, intelligences, consciousnesses. And one of these in the Hudson Valley, um, many Mexicans and Muncie um, peoples identified as so, as a being that they called Masinque. And Masinque was or is considered to be a guardian of the of the forest. Um, and depending on the band, you know, whether it was Muncie or Nami or Mexican, they had dif- they had slightly different ways in which they interacted with this being. Um, but, uh, we would most identify him as being closest to what we would call Bigfoot because of some salient characteristics. Um, he was usually identified, he usually made his presence known by, um, wood knocks, uh, by which are, he was not making the wood knocks, the Pukwajij who were accompanying him were making wood knocks, um, hooting sounds, um, howling. Um, uh, he, when he, if he did appear, he might appear as a big shaggy being. Um, he, uh, he was often accused of like being cryptic with his footsteps, with his footprints, <laughs> you know? Um, so you just see one or two showing up, you know, kind of like, we're kind of like, it sounds like, you know? So the things that, that we would, you know, Europeans now or American, the American white Americans would now say were. Bigfoot, um, they would identify in a different way. Um, so, you know, so yeah, I mean, it's like, he's a guardian of the forest. He's somebody that, um, you have to, um, you have to pay attention to, um, according to the traditions or what I've been taught. Uh, if you, before you would go hunting, um, or even into the woods for any, length of time and this would be the deep woods you know where humans didn't hang out uh you you should before you enter give an offering at least of tobacco uh so that you let the forest know what your intentions are um and so that you might come back out of them (laughs) you know what i mean and and every um native person i've ever met in the in the eastern woodlands um whether they are 
Muncie or Abenaki or Micmac or, or Haudenosaunee or, you know, or whatever they are, they have all told me that, that it is, that it's really not a good idea for humans to go out by themselves in the woods at night. <clears throat> and that's only partly because of the, of the obvious wild animals that are out there, because there aren't that many of those anymore, you know, that, that might've been something that was a danger at one time, but, um, it, you know, it's because of it's because that time belongs to other creatures, you know, and actually humans don't live in the woods. They live in settlements by the woods. I mean, not even the indigenous people lived in the woods, you know, they, they lived in settlements um, on the edge of the woods. Right. So, in clearings. Yeah. Well, cl well, clearings that they had made. Actually, yeah, exactly. That they, that they had yeah. managed. Yeah. I think there's, <clears throat> definitely something to that i mean the wilderness doesn't belong to people it doesn't feel like and like i i feel that in a very intuitive way um probably because i grew up on a lot of fairy tales but there's always a sense of you know cut no green wood you know ask before taking don't be a jerk in the woods don't go with no good purpose be respectful while you're in there and then leave before nightfall because it's not for you. It's not your house. It's, it's yeah, not it's house. not my house. It's, not your house. <laughs> it's everything else's house. Yeah, yeah. And it's the yeah. big things that I can't always see's house. But I'm I guess superstitious and I've seen some strange things. Never seen Bigfoot. But. Well, but, you know, East uh, Northern Europeans, pre-modern Northern Europeans, um, very much believed, agreed with, would agree with you. You know, I mean, <clears throat> now Northern Europe was, the forests in Northern Europe were fairly dangerous places. You know, the wolves and the bison and all the animals that were there in the woods, the bears, were bigger, actually, in some ways than they are here. And... It was dangerous. Um, humans in the woods are dangerous too. You know, it's like you know, humans stalking other humans is not a new thing. You know, so, um, but yeah, I mean, it's not it's not where it's not where we live, and that's part of the reason. That's part of where the uh, the the uh, pilgrim idea of wilderness came from. You know, when the pilgrims came over, uh, the colonists who became what we call the pilgrims came over. Um, they were Puritans is what they were, Calvinists. They regarded the woods as the place where Satan lived. And they had, uh, they had this idea that, that only um, uncivilized people would live in the woods. Uh, and so they were very suspicious of the close relationship that indigenous people had with the woods. Uh, and of course, misunderstood it a lot. Um, and and by the time they got here, a lot of them, by the time they got here, uh, the first waves of epidemic had already swept through uh, a lot of the, the um, indigenous villages and towns. And so um, people had taken to living in the woods to get away from this invader, you know, that was coming yeah. to get them. So they, so they weren't encountering indigenous people's always sort of in their, in their, in their natural sort of native, um, frame, you know, the, the way that they had lived for, you know, thousands of years. 
And, and so they just assumed that indigenous people must be of Satan because that's what the wilderness was of. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, indigenous people often, they were also often painted with the same brush that the wilderness was painted with. Um, I mean, I talk a little bit about stuff like that kind of in the book. You know, I don't uh, dwell on that so much in the book, but I think that the message of that gets across, you know. Um, you know, the stories about Masinkwe are really interesting, like where he came from, uh, you know, and there are lots of stories about it, but the one that I tell in the book is is how he came from the sky. You know, he came he came from the place where the ancestors well, which is in the sky, and and he came down um, to, to, to speak to these three little boys who'd been mostly um, neglected by their, their family for so, or their people for some reason. You know, people had sort of fallen out of doing the right rituals and being courteous to the woods, being courteous to, um, you know, the living things around them, not doing the ceremonies correctly. And so Masinkwe taught these three little boys how to, how to do the correct ceremonies and told them, to go back and tell the people. And so that they tried, you know, to do that, but they were little boys and nobody listened to them. And so they went back out to the woods and, uh, um, and Masinkwe, you know, they called Masinkwe and Masinkwe, uh, you know, said, you know, they told him, well, nobody's listening to us because we're kids and nobody cares about us. So Masinkwe accompanied them back. And, and taught the people the right ways to do stuff. I mean, what is interesting about a lot of indigenous stories is that there is, there is often, when you're talking about, you know, Bigfoot-like creatures, the Ojibwe have a similar story, um, actually. The, the name of the creature or the name of the cryptid is much longer and I can't pronounce it. I'd have to go next door to my office and find the book that it's in. Um, but they, but in, they have a lot of these stories have this idea that um, these beings have had to teach human beings how to be proper, to be appropriate, to be, uh, because if you leave human beings to their own devices, they do stupid egotistical things. And I think that's interesting that that's in these stories because, um, you know, White folks like us, we tend to think that, you know, well, natives were just one with nature and, you know, we just, you know, they just knew how to do this. And it's like, they, the, you know, indigenous people that I know, they don't say that. They say, you know, we, we, we screw up, you know, we're humans, we screw up and we've had, we had to be trained how to live as, as proper creations in this creation. Um, and, and we, and, and the reason why they, do try to live that way is because they screwed up in the past. And I think that's fascinating because nobody ever thinks about that. You know, it's oh, like, uh, you know, they screwed up and they have these histories of having screwed up. Yeah. You know, there's a proper understanding of human nature there <laughs> yeah. because we, you know, we are egotistical screw ups. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and it's, and it's different though than saying that we're sinful and that we're yeah. bad. You know, I mean, there's also these stories are also connected to these ideas that humans are important, that they are an important part of creation, that that there's a purpose for us being here. But but that doesn't mean that the planet belongs to us. Yeah. And that's yeah. very, very clear. It's like, 
you know, we belong to it, or we belong actually to the larger thing, whatever that is, that the planet and everything else, and we belong to that, you know, so the planet right. belongs to that. And we belong to that too. And for some reason, humans mess that up, you know. And in fact, almost all indigenous groups, at least in North America, because that's where I'm most familiar with it, um, all indigenous groups that I have encountered have some feature of that, you know, some 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 memory of you know when we screwed up, <laughs> you know, and, right. and why and why the ceremonies came, you know, why those things that make us dis- make them distinctively who they are, why they came, you know, whether yeah. it's whether it's white buffalo woman or the or the the ruined stories of the Hopi or whatever, you know. So it's just interesting. That was a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> I appreciate it. But it's a good yeah. answer. Yeah. It's a good answer. Um, yeah, the the first couple of chapters where you, you talk about the indigenous people and their beliefs are kind of, well, I don't want to say they're my very favorite part of the book, but they are up there in my favorite parts of the book because that's a... Uh, that's a perspective that is often lacking when you're talking about um, strange occurrences. Uh, RD6 Killer Clark has written four books now um, that outline Native American views of and experiences with generally ufo phenomena and the sky people or the sky beings but there's also you know overlap with other bits and pieces of other sorts of phenomena if you want to separate them all out into different phenomena which i don't necessarily think is the exact right way to do it but because i think they're all related but Mm -hmm. she's written some excellent excellent books on that subject and I, I really enjoyed reading those as well, but it is really interesting to look at her. Her stuff is mostly modern. She's, she's speaking with people who have had these experiences themselves. Right. She does bring in the historical perspective, but mostly it's modern stuff. Whereas you went and you got historical and oral tradition mm-hmm. perspective from the past right as well as as currently. And I I think that's very, very fascinating. I really liked you talking about Mesenque. One of the things that I remembered, you know, I I started reading it. I had a book about Native Americans when I was a kid and it was a National Geographic coffee table book. So there were lots of beautiful full color photographs. And one of them was a Mesenque mask with Mm. the, half red and half white face or half black face um, that was carved out of a living tree. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it described how they did it all. And I saw the name Mesenque and I'm like, that's familiar. Why is it familiar? (laughs) Why? And then I saw red and black in my head and then you described the mask and I went, ah, okay. I understand. I, I remember now. Um, that was one of my favorite pictures in the book. Um, and, uh, I thought it was interesting. It also, 
uh, sort of jumped out at me, the red and the black, because um, one of my podcasting friends, Tim Renner, has been uh, collecting stories about a being that seems to be an emergent folkloric figure um, called Flannel Man because he's wearing a buffalo plaid shirt that's usually red and black check. Mm-hmm. The thing about checkerboard sort of patterns is that they are a balance between white and black or red and black or whatever color it is so that it's a balance between two symbolic um, colors. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I was like, hmm, you know, could this be sort of an archetype that's coming into non-Native people's ideas to be something to, you know, kind of get people the idea that maybe you should pay attention to the forests, to the earth, to, you know, not just yourself. <laughs> like, Well, I mean, I, I mean, it's possible. I mean, we, we know pretty much what Masinkwe black and white meant. Um, I'm black and red meant because they, they told us, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they, um, they were pretty straight up about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it represented, you know, well, it actually represented the dual nature of Masinkwe too. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you know, like, you know, the response that you get from him is based on your, you know, the relationship that you establish with him. And um, because he's basically a protector of the forest. So if you're not going to respect his authority there, well, you know, you you can't expect any favors from him. You know, you can't expect him to be your friend, essentially. Now, what is interesting about what you're talking about in terms of the check stuff or or the flannel man is that uh, they're actually, if you go back in European folklore, particularly English folklore, there is there 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 are stories of uh, figures that appear in the wilderness to people that are wearing checked shirts. Um, and this is actually an, a, a, a not uncommon feature of even ghost stories in the, mm-hmm. the 18th and 19th century. So um, checked shirts were kind of, they were, they were, um, or, you know, checkered shirts of different types or plaid, either one. Uh, they were they were seen as being um, possibly connected to uh, a haunting or the devil or um, it, or some similar to the way clowns used to be seen in in, mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages, kind of trickster figures, if you will. Um, and certainly in that sense, you know, I, I I always have to remind myself and other people that that the word monster comes from the Latin word monstrum, and it means a warning. So mm-hmm. a monster is something that warns. So, um, you know, in that sense uh, of, a, you know, wanting you to pay attention, uh, I mean, certainly it, it's going to wear a, a brightly or a, or a pattern like that in order to get your attention. I don't know that it's exactly the same thing as Masinkwe. Yeah. I don't personally believe in archetypes. Okay. I, I'm not an archetype person. I do think that there are similar energies in similar places because we live on one planet and we share one biology. 
And so um, that one biology is, is going to express itself um, to us in ways that we might understand. And because of that, because it's expressing itself through biology and through our ability to perceive it, there, there are probably a limited range of options <laughs> that, right. that human beings have, you know, that are almost always related to our life cycles or, you know, you know, whatever. I mean, humans are not that complicated, really, when you look at, you know, life, death, earth, you know, reproduction, you know defecation, eating, whatever, you know, we're pretty much like, you know, two bodies with brains that are too large. So, you know, I, my own sense of archetypes is that if whatever is meant by that, because the idea of archetypes is that they exist kind of in this transcendental realm and they kind of dip down in and express themselves to us, you know, and that's what I have difficulty with. Um, I think that it's it's more internal. There's no there's no other realm that's sort of like idealized and transcendent. It's it's um, there's there's a as Keel put it, there's a substratum of of, of 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 there's a larger reality that we're a part of, and and it will try to express itself in ways if it needs to because we're stupid. It, it will try to express itself in ways that we can understand it or perceive it. And that will automatically squeeze it into certain forms, if that makes sense. It does. Red is probably I've I've heard that is the first color that uh, babies see and will focus on is red, and that's the first color that human eyes like to latch onto. So mm -hmm. that's probably right. part of it. Right. Well, and, and red is interpreted in different ways. So, cause like, yeah. you know, human, human blood can be red, but you know, like in, for East, for woodland, Eastern peoples, red, you know, from basically the Ohio East, red is understood as the color of the sunrise. And, and so it's a good thing, you know, it's uh, yeah. it, that's what they call the, the red road of peace. Now the Shawnee for the Shawnee, uh, they they tended to regard red as actually the path of war, and so for them the the, the road of peace was the white road. So they right. used, you know so I so different groups are different, but um and it, but it has a lot to do just sort of like you know your environment and and uh, you know just what makes sense to a group of people over time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. But red certainly will get your attention. I mean, in, in a lot of European settings, uh, red is a sort of a, because of its association with blood, was often connected to violence or passion or danger. So, I tend to think yeah. of it as, as life mm -hmm. because of the connection with blood. It's your mm -hmm. life's blood. It's right. Red. Yeah, and it could be that. It's a celebration color in China. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. high energy, high energy yeah. in, in China. Yep. Which makes sense. Red can also be the color of fire. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you if somebody does, uh, you know, um, feng shui in your house, you need to give them the, the, the nine envelopes with the right. extra gifts in them. Yeah. Right. Nine, nine red envelopes. Yep. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I was also interested to learn that when you're talking about the little uh, anomalous lights, the little orbs that float around mm -hmm. closer to the ground, that orange, 
was considered to be one of the more safer quote unquote mm-hmm. colors uh, for whatever it is. Uh, it, you said it was orange, white, yellow, yellow. Yeah. And then blue, red, and green were less kosher. And- were less positive. Yeah. <laughs> especially, especially red and green. I mean, especially blue and green, especially blue it's and green. Very interesting. Yeah. And um, I, I, I don't really know why, uh, you know, I mean, I, I never have gotten an explanation for that. Um, be, that's just sort of a tradition. Know, it's not, it's, well, it's knowledge, you know, it's, yeah. it's just sort of knowledge, you know, um, because if I talked to, you know, like, well, it's a couple of, you know, I, there's a couple of, um, like there's a Mohican elder that I talked to and then, there's a couple of, um, there's a Micmac elder that's a teacher of mine. And then there's, uh, you know, a few Muncie people that I know. And so if I talk to them about this stuff, they'll say like, well, what color was it? That's <laughs> you know, just, that's what they want to know, you know? And so I tell them, and how was it moving? You know, was it moving like this or, you know, was it moving in a bunch, you know, little, because it's, it, it's important whether it's like one big thing, like moving across a field. Or if it's a bunch of small ones, you know, kind of moving in patterns. I mean, all of those are different in different ways, and they don't ne- they they don't necessarily tell me what those di- what what that is. You know, I mean, you know, white people want to know, but um, <laughs> yes, but, we do. But, but 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 indigenous folks are you know they're not always going to talk about the significance of this stuff because number one, it's none of our business, and number two. Um, if it's not a good thing and you talk about it too much, it will come and visit you. Yes. And actually I have people that that's happened to hasn't happened to me, but I do know people that that's happened to. So, um, you know, it's like, it's like the fairies. And now I should have said the it's, word it's, almost. It's, it's, it's precisely the fairies. Just knock on wood. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> Just knock on wood. Leave some butter out later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Except here they're called, they're not fairies. They're, well, there's a couple names. There's um, Wemi Takanis is one name, uh, one group, and then another group is Pukwudjidge. Pukwudjidge. And it, and uh, in fact, Pukwudjidj, which is an Algonquin term, has actually is so common that it's actually made its way into common vernacular. Yes. So people will say Pukwudji, and they think that it's like an Irish term, and it's like no, it's an Algonquin term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's Mimsigwasi. I think that's up around the Great Lakes region, mm-hmm. um, and then the Yunwetsundi of the Cherokee. That's the little people. And then the Cherokee also have the the Nunahe, mm-hmm. and those are the ones I think I think of them as sort of like the Irish she. They're sort of like that because the way they're described, they're not small, they're human sized, mm-hmm. uh, and they're very very beautiful. And they mm-hmm. live up on the Bald Top Mountains in the in the granite boulders. So mm-hmm. they, yeah. you know, and they'll you know if you, they seem to like humans well enough kind of like the the she they like you well enough so long as you stay in your lane don't cause problems um you know and follow the hospitality rules and all of that yeah exactly yeah yeah there are lots of uh 
I mean, there. I mean, I, I mentioned this briefly. Um, there are lots of different um, nations that are recognized, some of which uh, don't particularly like humans at all. Um, mm. there, there, there's uh, the Abenaki talk about a group of them that are that live near somewhere near the St. Lawrence River, which is far north of me, and and apparently they you don't want to wander into their territory because humans will disappear. They just oh. they really don't like humans at all. They're quite aggressive about it, and so the so you know indigenous folks you know avoid <laughs> that area entirely. Right. You know, and 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 you won't find that most indigenous people will actually talk about the little people very much. Um, that's just not something that you ca casually discuss. In fact, I shouldn't actually be talking about them right now because it's getting to be spring. Yeah, you're, you should only talk about them in the winter months when they're not about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's already spring here. So. I'll probably I'll probably have to put out tobacco later tonight. <laughs> If I can't want to get any sleep at all. That's probably a good idea. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I have had enough experiences myself to take it, to take all this seriously in a, in a loving way. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not, I don't, I'm not, I mean, you know, in my own cultural background, my ancestral background, um, there was some of this as well. You know, even though my grandparents on my mother's side were very German and very Lutheran, like, you know, we discussing, and they lived in Kansas all the time that I knew them. My grandmother still did some odd stuff. Like every Thursday night, she would put out food. She'd put out food, like it was scraps and stuff, but it was good food sometimes. And 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 she would always say it was for the cats and it was the feral cats. And I was like, well, the feral cats are there seven days a week. Why are you just putting food out for them on Thursday? You know, that was what she told me. And it turned out that it wasn't that at all. That was what she told people. It was that that's when her grandmother, her mother, my my her my great grandmother, when her mother told her that if you live on a farm, because she lived in town, but if you if you end up living on a farm, then on Thursday nights you need to put stuff out so that the land whites will be favorable to you. Yeah. Which is an old German thing. It's an old yeah. Anglo-German thing, doing that to the deezers of the land. So I was like, well, Grandma, <laughs> okay then. <laughs> you know, and of course, her, 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 her mother didn't like tell her all the details necessarily exactly, but just basically said, if you want good luck, you know what I mean? You do this on Thursday night, so... You know, I think I figured it all out later. And then it turned out that my grandma had had some really weird experiences, you know, before she died. I, I uh, asked her at one point, I spent a day with her and I asked her, so have you, have you and grandpa ever had any weird experiences out on the farm? And nobody had ever asked her that. And yeah, she had, they had had some That's odd experiences. Yeah. You know, nobody had ever asked. So, I've, I've had enough odd experiences to just, you know, it never hurts to be polite no. with people or other people. <laughs> yeah. Non other intelligences. Non-human yeah. people. Human yeah. people and non-human people. I, to me, everybody's people. And yeah. It's all people. Dogs and cats are people. Horses are people. You know, snakes are people. They're just snake people and 
So yeah. we're human people. Yeah. I really, uh, the, the, I, the anomalous lights, I, I always come back to those because that was probably my first experience as a very young child, seeing very small flashes of light in my room. Mm. And then when I first moved to Athens about a year after I had moved here, myself and a bunch of our friends started seeing them in the woods. It started mm. at one friend's house and then another friend started seeing them. I mean, Athens kind of has woods that just sort of goes all through the town. You mm -hmm. know, it's, we have national forest land that surrounds us and then it's just kind of woven all through the town. And, uh, so people were seeing it, you know, outside of their house. And then my husband and I moved out of town to the house that I call the falling down the hill house because somebody built a, the uh, foundation with no concrete footers. It was on sand. And so this, this maple tree behind it got bigger and bigger. And so the floors did this, you know, sort of serpentine bendy hill like formation. And it was, it was, we knew that in a really hard thunderstorm someday, it was just going to slide right down the hill and, and we'd be in the middle of the road. Um, but there were, there were lights out in those woods too. And they would sometimes come into the house. Mm, uh, they, they weren't all orange though. They, <laughs> there were some of the dangerous colors in there. <laughs> they're, they're, they're I kind, kind of, of wanted, invading I your home. Like known that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know that that's true every place, you know. I mean, yeah, I, there might there might be different. there might be ge ge geographical differences. That's all I know about the 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 eastern woodlands, you know. I mean, although I guess Ohio used to be part of that. Um, I mean, it was so considered to be part of yeah. that, and it, and it was it was wooded. So, tell me a little bit about Athens. Tell me about. Um, you said that there were mounds around. Do do you know the specific history of the place where you are? Okay, so the about nine miles from the center of Athens proper, there's the Wolf Creek mounds. Uh, yeah. It's a complex. Yeah. Um, there's one whole mound that has been built around. And it has not been disturbed. Uh, other ones have been destroyed. Uh, in the spring of 2019, a developer illegally destroyed one of the mounds. Um, and that's caused all sorts of issues. And in fact, when I found that out in the fall of 2019, I wondered if that was part of what was causing the extra added strangeness that was happening, you know, in the skies around town and people's houses. Um, but yes, there also were mounds on the hill that overlooks Athens. There's a ridge that overlooks us across the uh, Hawking River. And that's where the old insane asylum was built. Oh, that's uh, charming. <laughs> after, well, it's even more charming than that because they dug up the clay from the site where those mounds were and used that to make the bricks. All of the bricks were made on site. 
Um, and stone was quarried on site for it as well. And that was built after the Civil War. Mm. Um, and it was a very strong part of the town, part of the town's history until it was closed in 1992, which is around when I showed up. Mm -hmm. um, so those mounds were destroyed up on that hill. And then out in Zaleski State Forest, which was named after a Polish prince who had owned that land at one point and started building a castle on it, um, and so th that's now a ruin and, and you know, it's completely fallen down. But out in those woods, there are pits. And those pits were Native American prehistoric mounds that had been excavated by settlers in the early 19th century. And, you know, they basically dug it up. So all through those woods, if you go hiking, you have to kind of be careful because there are these round depressions where there had been mounds and, you know, with undergrowth, if it grows thick enough, you can't see it and you can step down and, you know, hopefully not break a leg. Right. Um, some of the roads in Athens were originally native footpaths. Mm -hmm. um, the Shawnee, Wyandotte, and Delaware hunted in this area, and the Seneca and Cayuga settled for a while. Mm -hmm. And there's right. there's also been four ancient artifacts found in my neighborhood, basically. Um, it's called the West Side of Athens. But our one of our main thoroughfares, East State Street, was a footpath, and so was another one, Stimson, which used to be uh, water, a path to get to the river and back for water. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe part, part of the Buffalo Trace went through yes, town. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's also Adena Mounds yep, that right. have been found. Right. Well, the reason I ask is because where you are is um, there, there, there's a book that, that you might both be interested in by a woman named Barbara Alice Mann. And uh, it's it's her book. She Barbara Alice Mann is a is a Seneca historian, and she uh, not only has been trained in like Western history, you know, so you know she does all the things that Western historians consider important, but she's also a uh, traditional uh, clan mother and lore keeper of the Seneca people, and so she tells the story of the mounds in Ohio specifically. Nice in this book uh, from traditional and historical sources. And um, the Adena mounds uh, were built by a, a, an early Lenape people that lived, uh, settled, that were among the first pe um, indigenous people to settle in, o in the Ohio. And then they moved on at a certain point. Uh, they moved on to the Hudson Valley uh, in, into well into New Jersey, eastern New Jersey, and then up into you know um, in the Hudson Valley. So they're the progenitors of the uh, the Muncie people and the Romani people and the Wappingers, and um, and then the uh, the uh, Hopewell uh, mounds were were those are well they were not Haudenosaunee at the time they were because the Haudenosaunee that that's a political system that came later, but um, 
the way she refers to it is Iroquois, the Iroquois, you know, sort of generally. Uh, and that's, you know, Seneca and Cayuga mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, what ended up happening, apparently, this is the story that she tells, is that um, there was a disagreement among the uh, among the the Iroquois, the different nations and different groups specifically, about uh, about this, a sort of elite, a political elite, a religious elite that had grown up around uh, corn agriculture, maize agriculture, and and she talks. I mean, there's a lot of different kind of native sources that she uses that are oral sources uh, where she talks where, where, you know, the different players in this all have different versions of these stories, you know, so you you have to sort of piece together the, you know, what happened, but what eventually ended up happening is that there was a huge civil war uh, uh, among the Iroquois and, and they had some of the, they had some Confederates with them, like the Shawnee joined in with this a little bit here and there. And, um, Although the Shawnee really came later in the sense mm-hmm. that they, they, they're part of the Missis, larger Mississippian complexes. But um, eventually what it ended up happening is uh, out of the Civil War um, developed this political system that, that the Haudenosaunee became known for, their confederacy. So um, let, me, let me find the actual title of this book. It's, it's not a pleasant book to read because she tells this, she tells the subtler history of what happened to these mounds. And it's, it's devastating. I mean, it's like, I, I just could read a little bit and put the book down because it was so difficult to read. It was so, you know, because basically um, we're just, you know, just tearing up other, other people's graveyards. Yeah. You know, I mean, find her here. It's called Native Americans, Archaeologists, and the Mounds. But since there were so many that were in, um, she's a, she's a, uh, she works at the University of Toledo. Oh. Um, and I actually recommend her for a lot of things. She's written a lot of really, like she, the book I'm reading of hers right now is called The Gontoesis. And the Gontawesis were the uh, were the women that Iroquois that that's the political position. Well, that's the political position that women held um, in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the history of that, how that came to be, because that was an important component of what ended the Civil War. And uh, yeah, women Seneca, in- Seneca played an important role in that. Yeah, women in the Eastern tribes had a fairly strong political role, mm-hmm. at least from what I've read. And I I do appreciate that, but I'm sure that did not go over terribly well with some of the settlers uh, because they wouldn't understand that. Oh no! There's in fact there's a book that is is called uh, it's uh, George, uh, that she also wrote called George Washington's War with Native America. Oh yeah, and 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 um, that and she talks specifically about that about um, well and also in her Gontawesis book she talked that first part of it where she's talking about the history of of uh, you know how this came about but then how settlers couldn't deal with that. 
um, and and how that's kind of impacted, excuse me, the ability of the uh, of the Haudenosaunee to retain certain types of continuity. So, for example, here in New York, the Cayuga are actually split right now because there's a huge contingent of traditional Cayuga that are um, attempting to rematriate, as they say. That's what they're trying to say. Uh, but then there's another group that is that is um, more connected to, like you know, Albany, you know, the the state, the you know, the state capital, and 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 they are opposed to this because it would mean it would mean redistributing the land in a different way, and it would mean using resources in a different way. Um, and some of these people have enriched themselves, you know. Um, yeah at the state coffers. So it's very, you know, it's, 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 it's actually become violent in, in, in Cayuga land. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's an issue, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, but it's very, it's an issue that's very much rooted in both the effects of settler culture on indigenous lives, but also the fact that, you know, indigenous people are human so uh, and yeah. and and the Haudenosaunee in particular, they have some of these conflicts already present in their history and are aware of that. You know, they have they have fought these battles before, and 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 what's and, and I think that if more people knew that history about them, they would realize, oh, you know, it hasn't. You know, indigenous people in the United States or in Amer the Americas, they haven't been. They weren't like suspended in time. You know, yeah. in this pristine wilderness. You know that that we then that we then then you know are in some other realm so we don't even have to respect their graves and can dig them up as curiosities you know it's yeah. so it's, it's so vulgar it's it's what my grandmother called tacky yeah we would never do that to our own graveyards i mean not oh well i guess actually we have actually, but not we do but well, actually we have but yeah it, White people will dig anything up, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Primates. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, Look yeah. at your British Museum. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And well, the Smithsonian. Yeah. And Smithsonian, yeah. And the Smithsonian. Yeah, they still, in fact, she, uh, Barbara Alice Mann estimates that there are still over a quarter million um, sets of human remains that the Smithsonian mm -hmm. has from all of this stuff. I'm sure that should be returned. Yeah, they've returned a few, but not nearly that many, and not nearly. And it's enough. like, and hey, what the hell are we going to do with all that stuff? It just sits in boxes, you know, and it doesn't belong to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's so weird, you know. It's terrible. oh, and they just they just celebrated. I think it was, uh, I think it was last November or December. They just celebrated uh, like something like ten mummies or something being being repatriated yes. back to Egypt. Yes, from the British Museum. That's so, excellent. You know, tiny tiny little trickles towards the right thing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody's going to have them in a museum, staring at them, at least let it be the people that they came from deciding to do that. That's different. You know, it's if if they yeah. want, yeah, if they want to bury it back, that's fine too, whatever. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, if Europeans want to dig their bog bodies out and and stick them in museums and have their descendants look at their bog bodies, that's one thing. But it's like, 
you know, <laughs> don't take somebody else's stuff and do that. That's and just, historically, don't take somebody else's body and eat it and use it for medicine. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would appreciate ah, it if humans ah, stopped doing that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm glad we ah, have, but we didn't need to do ah, that in the first place. Uh, yeah, the whole Victorian mummy thing. No, 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 no. Well, it was Not a medieval it. thing too. It was. Ju- yeah. It was just a whole thing. Yeah, but oh, I mean, a while. We're just like the eating of corpses. It's like what is that? <laughs> I don't. I mean, unless you're dying, like it's the Donner Party or something, and you kind of feel like you yes. have to, you know. It's or like, you're in but, Stalingrad during the Second yeah. World War. Yeah. You know, yeah. Which is why cannibalism is a taboo, people. It's a taboo. <laughs> it's just Stop eating people. Prion it's, diseases, fools. Prion diseases. Stop. And it's just rude <laughs> and creepy. And it, yeah, yeah, it's pretty. Gr- it's pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. I was gonna say it was in my brain, and then it went away, and I don't. I'm going to say that I really appreciated that you framed the book by first framing using the landscape and history and geology and geography to frame to to set the stage really and go. This is this is where this is happening. This is what it's like. This is what it's made of. These are the things that exist here. And these, this makes the personality mm-hmm. of the place. And then the humans that have moved across that scene and that stage have given it motion and more stories and layers of stories on stories and lives upon lives that sort of I think help animate the landscape to an extent. Well, we, yeah, they exist in relationship with the landscape. I think that there are there are a few places on the planet where it becomes it where it becomes very very difficult to erase the fact that that the planet is alive and. Um, I think that the Hudson Valley is one of those places where it's very clear that the planet is alive and it exists. You know, we can alter it. We can, we can, you know, we can do things uh, to it, but if we do, we're doing it to ourselves. Um, At some point, the, the land asserts uh, it's, it's own um, sovereignty I, I don't know how else to call it. You know, I think when when you know the history of the Hudson Valley of the past 400 years, you know, we think, you know, if you see pictures of it now, you know, we think of the forests and, and you know, it's wooded and everything. And, and, and I always have to explain to people that that in the last 400 years, most of that forest has been clear cut twice yeah. and grown back. Now, so it's not the same kind of forest as it would have been when the, when the settlers first came, you know, the, the tree density is different. The, the, the ratio, you know, the types of trees are different. The understory is different in some ways because of the clear cutting and the erosion. It's not what it was, but it's still, it wants to grow a forest here. You know, it's like, it's very clear that it, that that's what the land wants to do here. And, and, and it will do that um, despite your attempts to do anything about it. And 
that's what I mean when I say, you know, there's, and, and the, the river itself has a personality. You know, we've yeah. polluted it, we've screwed it up, um, but it, it still asserts its um, personality, its um, claim um, all the time. And I, th and so, you know, I, it's, it's in places like this, I think, where you, you realize that, that you, that you're part of something you're, you're, you know what I mean? And, yeah. um, you know, I, when you're living in, I mean, and I think even like New York city takes on a quality of that, even though it's, it's a, it's a big city, you know, and, uh, you know, it's got 9 million people in it and, um, it's, it's got like, you know, you know, three times as many people as the entire state of Kansas has in it, just, just in this one place. And, uh, but, you know, when you realize where that city was built, what it was built on, you know, what resided there pri pri previous to that city, and then all the things that have come to that, because even before that city was built, Manhattan, the, uh, the, the island of Manhattan, and that's no Algonquin name, that's a Muncie name, Man Manhattan. Um, that place was already a, a place of trade where people from all over, as far south as the Caribbean, the Taino, would come up the, the coast and trade at the mouth of the Hudson. And there, I mean, there are Taino artifacts that are as far north as the Catskills, you know. So it's like yeah. they would come up, up, obviously, up the river, you know, as well. And... Uh, um, and then this big city is built in this place where people already gathered. So it's so somehow the land impacts even our attempts to colonize it. It yeah. just says, screw you. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is this is who you are going to be if you sit on me. You you right. may you may take my topsoil, you may take my trees, but this this is my body, this is my this is where what I'm going to be here. And the Hudson Valley is a place that's like that. And um, people that live here, they've had to learn that. To, they've had to learn that. And they do, you know, and they treasure that. Um, that's actually a really important component of what it means to live here. Yeah. And you have to adjust to it. Yes. I had to adjust. I had to adjust to it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of here. the way Athens does. It's, and and when you talk about forests, you know, returning and having been clear cut, large chunks of West Virginia were clear cut. That's where mm -hmm. both of us grew up. Um, and there's a a place close to the uh, the capital city where I grew up, but you know you can drive ten miles out of the capital city of West Virginia and you're in woods, mm -hmm. and that's that's where you are or farmland and then woods um, because it's really hard to farm there because of the hills and mm -hmm. it's yeah. It, so you can't do big farms really well once you're outside of the river valleys, but the forest comes back so quickly mm -hmm. that there was a house that Morgana's father had been told about as a kid out in the middle of the woods near his grandparents' farm. And it was a place that had belonged to a lady that his father remembered 
walking out there with his brothers and the other neighborhood children. And she, she didn't have children of her own. Her husband had died and she hadn't remarried. So she lived out there by herself. And so she, she would play with the kids and, and she'd make cookies for them and all the, you know, bake pies and they'd, you know, just have fun playing at Aunt Melissy's house. That was what they called her, Aunt Melissy. And uh, Morgana's father wanted to go out there and show it to me. And I said, have you ever been there? And he said, oh, well, no, but my dad's told me about it. You know, I, I want to see it. And so you go out this road. There was There had been a road, but it had grown over. So all of the gravel was, you know, trees were starting to grow up through the gravel. And so it was a bare path, you know. And so we, we walk and we walk and we walk. We get there. And the house has been colonized by trees mm-hmm. um, growing straight up through the center of the house and, you know, branches coming up out of the roof and vines crawling in, breaking the glass and wiggling through and taking over. And there were signs that um, foxes and raccoons had been mm-hmm. living, you know, the floorboards had caved in so they could get in under into mm-hmm. the cellar and be, you know, they could, they could be, you know, warm there in the winter. Mm-hmm. And it, there was also Aunt Melissa's ghost was there. At least I assume that's who that was that I saw, but it was fascinating to me how fast. So his father at that time was in his forties. So it had only been 30, 35 years and the forest had done all of that. And that, that really, you know, showed me that trees, of course, live generations beyond what humans do if they're left to their own devices and we don't cut them down. And so imagine what their memory mm-hmm. length is. And I almost feel like they're kind of, they could communicate what the land says because they have a longer memory than we do. Oh yeah, and they and well, and that we know that now that they communicate to their roots and and uh, with e- with each other and with other things, you know, with other plants yeah. and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's um, I, I I tend to think that there's communication going on all around us all the time, but we are we're too um, we're too focused in a certain way to be able to hear it, and then every now and then that that other world breaks through and then we have an experience and and the fact is you know we call it paranormal but the fact is it's probably always going on uh, around us all the time and and at some point our attention is such or the conditions or are such or both that we have experiences um and i've even thought about you know, if, if ever, if, if, if there is the substratum of consciousness that, you know, super reality that like John Keel liked to talk about, and this is part, this is actually a, a property of the planet itself as a conscious being, um, you know, how else would, how else would it communicate with us except symbolically in certain ways, you know, or, or poking us, you know, <laughs> yeah. in certain ways, you know, um, I mean, really, we were kind of stupid. We don't, it takes a while to get our attention sometimes because we get so sort of blinded by, you know, like what is immediately before us. 
Yeah. And even and even more now, you know, those of us who, you know, who are live in societies where we don't we think we're not having a lot to do with nature, what we call nature, you know, um, all the time, even though, of course, we're constantly interacting with it. But we yeah. think of our and we think it's outside our window, you know, and and it's not. It's right here with me. Yep. Well, it's like you forget. I, people forget that their house is built on the earth and like made of wood and air is just air. There, we don't have airlocks and air manufacturing systems in our house. This air in here is the same as the air out there. And it's just everything right. is a web of interconnectedness. And I feel like that's common sense in a way. But one, I can, would, th one would think... I can understand how you would like not think of it that way, I suppose. It just, well, I, I don't know. It makes more sense to me to acknowledge that we're part of an ecosystem than that we're somehow like humans are above that ecosystem in some way. And I'm like, we're not, we're just another animal in an ecosystem in part of a food chain on a planet that's part of a galaxy i i don't know yeah well no yeah i mean yeah it's it's uh i mean i i used to i well i still do this with my students sometimes my college students like look you know look look at the environment that you're in you know where we're sitting here in this college room you know name one thing in this room that 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 ultimately doesn't have its origin on the planet i mean even if it's synthetic you know, it does yeah. because it's it's been made out of petroleum or some other chemical that has been derived from something here. You know, we may have altered it. We may have mangled it. We may have reconstructed it, but we got the raw materials here. Yeah. You know, period, end of sentence. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just it's just it's just the truth, you know. It's not being woo-woo. <laughs> no. It's just it feels woo-woo-y. Even yeah, yeah, though I know it's, it's not. Yeah, it's not, it's not woo-woo. You know, some, some of this came about, I suspect, from the biblical story that God gave the world to humans through Adam and said, you know, here it is. I made it for you. Take care of it. And that means, oh, well, we can do anything. And I yeah, think well, well, in the West, yeah. that's part of, you know, where all of that strange idea that, you know, we have the right to do things to our planet that really are pretty stupid. You know, when well, people... She's about to get her own back. Yeah. <laughs> when people say that we're killing the planet, I'm like, no, we're killing ourselves. Mm-hmm. We yeah. are making the environment such that we, and sadly, lots of perfectly innocent animals and plants can't live, but life will rise again, and the planet itself will be okay, and might do better if we weren't, you know, mucking everything up. <laughs> but yeah. when people are like, oh, you're destro we're destroying the planet, we're destroying the planet, I'm like, mm, no, we're destroying ourselves. And I really right. wish people would get that through their heads a little bit better, which is why I keep saying it, because that is the end result. And, and sometimes people can't 
If they don't have empathy for other beings, hopefully one would think they have some self-preservation instinct. Well, well, one would think, you know. Yeah, I mean, what I trace it to is, I mean, what's interesting about that, I think it also has a problem to do with translation. Because in English, we say, you know, God created the world and gave it to humans. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. You know, in the Hebrew, it, the word that is used that is translated as, you know, create and subdue it. You know, when they say it, it says that in, in Hebrew, what it actually says in literal translation is, is, is become, become a master uh, of living with it. And, other, and, the, and, the, and the verb that's used is the same verb that, you, that would be used if you were going to say master the violin. You know, you don't master the violin by conquering the violin. You, you master the violin by understanding its properties and, and um, being able to bring those properties out. And, and, you know, you have a relationship with this object and, and, you, and you create beauty. And um, that's, what that, that's what the actual verb that is then translated is to subdue it. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you have to ask yourself, who did that? You know, that's a theological rendering of something else. You know what I mean? Um, We can't even probably blame King James for that. It was probably a mistranslation of a mistranslation of a mistranslation. So, yeah, I I, I don't don't know where it began. I don't know where it began, but, but, but also some, I know that some of our attitude also comes from um, the works of Francis Bacon. Yes. uh, uh, And, and in, in his writing, the Novum Organum where he basically, um, uh, he basically compares the earth to uh, to a witch that needs to be put on the rack yeah. and tortured for her secrets. Because the witch crazes were going on at that yeah. time. Yeah. You know? King James and, also. So and so and so and so, you know, he's he's that's what the scientist is. The scientist will put Mother Nature on the rack. I mean, he says this in so many words. We'll put Mother Nature on the rack and torture her for her secrets. Because that's a healthy way to look at, you know, a spirit know, of inquiry. <laughs> I know. It's like, I, I remember when I first read that and had my students students read that, they were like, oh, my God. It's like, it's like who, who is this dude? It's like, well, you know, he's supposed to be the illegitimate son of Elizabeth I. I have no idea whether he really was or not, but you know, he's, quite, he's quite a dude. He got ran out of France, you know. He's an avowed atheist at a time when you could be burnt for that. So he's an interesting guy. Yeah. I can't say I, I approve of his idea there, though. <laughs> oh, well, no, not, not at all. Again, not at all. you know, that's, that's right up there with King James and suffering, not witches to live, which that's not what it says in Hebrew either. Right, so exactly. It's poisoners. And, you know, when you live in a area that's very dry and someone poisons the well, well, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> but, well, and that, that was considered a, that was considered a crime for everyone. That's know, a crime against that. humanity, essentially. Yeah. And well, against nature too. Yeah. You know, to, to poison a well. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that part of what, you're saying in in your book and what we're understanding is that the land itself is part of what makes 
a special or interesting place like a window area. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, it is the land and the history. Land. And yes, the longer the history, the more layers to it, the more energy. I think energy has a lot to do with it as well. I noticed that there's river valleys. There's a mm -hmm. lot of, you know, water carries so much energy. It mm -hmm. just by its movement, um, it's kinetic energy, if nothing else. Um, but it also can, can conduct electricity. So, you know, perhaps. And it, and it, and it dissolves minerals. Um, yes. And, 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 you know, it's very, moves the minerals. Um, so you have, you know, that sort of subtle energy, but you also have the energy of different peoples layering their experiences over atop an area by living there right? and uh, connecting there. Do you have a lot of people in the Hudson Valley who are very connected to the earth in a spiritual sense? Or well, are they attracted there? Do you... well, considering that the Hudson Valley is 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 considered to be um, the place where the one of the places where the environmental movement started. That's yeah <laughs> in the in the United States. Um, I, I I mean that's been my experience. I mean what's interesting to me about it is that even people who would not typically I think consider themselves to be you know liberal whatever that means you know. Um, they, when, when it comes to environmental things here, um, you will find all kinds of interesting people, um, protesting those things, you know? So for example, um, one of the issues that they've had here in the Hudson Valley is, uh, this, this persistent desire on the part of certain companies to create pipelines that would bring fracked um, uh, um, yes. natural gas from from Pennsylvania. Um, they they were gonna like they were gonna like build a or I think they actually built part of the pipeline, but they were actually gonna build a, a pipeline like drill underneath the Hudson River, like under it, and then and then um, pass within fifteen hundred feet of Indian Point nuclear power plant which oh because that's a beautiful terrible plan what What's the so, mm. so so which they are decommissioning the nuclear power plant by the way i mean they finally it's the oldest one of the oldest nuclear power plants like in, in the country yeah. and yeah. and it has um and it has like no defenses against any um it, any any level of like say earthquakes and we do occasionally get earthquakes oh, yeah, you do. We, we do occasionally do um and but it but it wouldn't withstand a you know a, a, even a small moderate one if it were to hit so um so they they're shutting it down but um yeah so they they had this so we've been having these issues with pipelines and what's interesting is that you know people that are very conservative areas like in Dutchess County or, or Platteville or whatever, very, you know, conservative red areas. They don't want them either because they don't want that through their, you know, they don't want that to go through their yard or whatever. And it reduces the, the, the value of your land. I mean, there's just clear economic reasons for it. But the other thing is, is that everybody just kind of knows that that's going to, 
this is it's also a fragile environment here and you can't do too many things like that without it causing irreparable harm yeah yeah you know having i mean on and considering that the indian point power nuclear power plant is right on it sits right on the shore of the hudson river so if something were to happen there and it were to dump anything substantive into the river because the river's an estuary it wouldn't just flow downstream the tides would take it all the way up to albany it would you know it would it, i mean it's terrifying to think about you know i don't even you know and and so putting I, an explosive gas right next to it that's a good <laughs> idea I like, like that idea. Wow. Like, that was that was obviously created by three stupid people and a committee. You know, <laughs> like, uh, I'm still shaking my head over that one. I'm, <laughs> you know, wow, and that's, that's and that's just like one project. I mean, because because of because of the place here. Um, a lot of these, we just, in fact, there was another one that was just shut down. Um, that that. Um, you know, we have these reservoirs that were built in the early 20th century uh, to supply water for New York City. And, and, the, and the building of that reservoir system was very controversial in and of itself because it, it, it changed the land. I mean, it wrecked, it wrecked Esopus Creek, you know, for a while until they could figure out something else to do with it. Excuse me. But um, what's interesting is that because of what it was doing to people and the land, um, communities came together and they actually found ways of incorporating. It's like, well, if, if, if the city's going to build this, you know, and we can't stop it, let's figure out ways in which to, to make it part of our lives. So they've actually gone to great lengths. Um, in fact, the, on the cover of the book, uh, Mysterious Beauty, which, by the way, is a place where um, UFOs are seen, lights in the sky are seen frequently, uh, that is taken over Ashokan Reservoir, one of these reservoirs. Uh, and in order to, to build Ashokan Reservoir, they, they drowned um, several towns. They had to move the towns and, and drowned a number of really important indigenous archaeological sites. Of course, that are now, of course, underwater. Um, but um, what they've done is they've they've made it into this beautiful place. And so there was this California hydroelectric company that was going to come in and and like do some kind of hydroelectric. Um, you know, they were going to do something with with the reservoir itself, and um, and what's left of the Sopus Creek there. And create a hydroelectric project that would have completely destroyed uh, the watershed of Esopus, um, and 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 they and it was just like this company that came in without any knowledge of the land or the people. And they, in fact, on their on their proposal maps, they didn't even get the names of the towns right that were going to be surrounding where this was. And I mean. Like everybody in the valley just like rose up and was like, no, <laughs> they basically almost threw them out. You know, it was Good. like, and but it's but we but it's a constant thing. It's like this is constantly going on here that there is some pro because there's so much water here that yeah. that that there's you know we had a we had another uh, another um, I think it was like it wasn't Nestle it was Poland. 
Poland Water, you know, Poland Water Company. Uh, they came in and they wanted they wanted to tap the water in Cooper Lake, which is the which is what um, uh, feeds Woodstock and that whole area yeah. up in there. And uh, and I'm and and they were going to they were going you know they were going they were confidently estimating that they would be able to, to produce two million bottles of plastic plastic bottles of water. They were going to make their own plastic. They had no plans of what to do with the waste products from their own plastic production. And and I mean, it's like <laughs> you have no idea. It was like everybody just. That that happened the same year that Standing Rock was going on. So oh Lord! Like, so, so the people here were just really incensed, you know, and and, and it did take a lot. And so we drew, drove them out of that place. So they went across the river to Dutchess County to try it in Dutchess County, and Dutchess County drove them out of the valley. <laughs> it was just Good like for them. Out, out, just out. <laughs> you know? So, but so, so to, so to answer your question, yes. <laughs> You know, there's there's this sense that um, you know, it's like it's ours. Don't mess with it. Good. We're the keepers of it. Don't mess with it as much as possible. Not everything gets won. Not everybody gets won. But you know, um, more land needs champions like that. I think. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is just everyday people. I mean, and we're talking like. Democrats and Republicans. I mean, nobody wants their nobody wants their home trashed. You know, it's it's when it's when it's when you're trashing somebody else's home. Oh yeah, you, you don't you don't live there. You know, uh, and you know, in Standing Rock, they the the original plan of the da, the Dapple pipeline was to go north of Bismarck, which meant that it would go over that river that might actually so that they had a, a they had a you know a, a leak that it would go into the city. Well when they realized that they moved it. They specifically moved it so that it would only go through um, the Lakota territory. Yeah, Native American land because well because yeah. screw them. Because screw them. They can't mm. fight us anyway. Yeah. 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 But anyway so yeah, we ha- and 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 we have we have our human champions, and then I think we also have our other champions. Yeah, you know our other non-physical champions, who 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 scare the crap out of people. Middle of the night, who show up. I mean, I, I mean, what's I will say? What's weird is that um, I have I have had my own experiences here. I mean, I've had experiences over the course of my life. Um, but I have had more experiences in a shorter period of time in a smaller space here. It, you know, it took it took me being you know like here and here and here and here and here to have a collection of different types of experiences in other parts of the country. But here I've had them all together, including some that I've never had before, very unexpectedly. You know, yeah. and I talk about a couple of them in the book. You know, yeah, um, like the like the deer ghost and and and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the deer ghost and the uh, the uh, the little I guess it was a puck wedge. I don't really know who whatever the light was, whatever the thermal signature was in front of the stump that you could only pick up with a thermal device, but not with your eyes. That was pretty freaky. Yeah, <laughs> that, that one pretty, is weird. That yeah. was pretty strange. Yeah. 
That uh, one, I, I really liked that one. I, I could you sort of tell a little, sort of. We're telling yeah, sure. pieces here, and the listeners are going to be like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, you were, but, well, I don't. That's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> do I care? <laughs> um, anyway, um, well, in this the the this this little heat signature, I was out with Gail Beatty and one of her. Um, helpers you know somebody was who does bigfoot stuff with her and we were just sort of going through this one area where people have had different kinds of experiences and what she tends to do is she'll take out different devices like she actually uses devices like what ghost hunters use which and i think is a it, great idea yeah it's it's a fabulous idea and she they get all kinds of weird interesting stuff instead of including evp i mean who knew you know you get ev you know bigfoot evp how strange is that? Anyway, we um, so she she has these uh, uh, they're 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 like uh, goggles that you wear. They're like glasses that have uh, a video camera in them, and so you can just sort of walk around and and sort of just you know take pictures of things, and then you can go home and kind of examine to see what you saw. And um, so she gets, she sometimes when she's, when it's a good day, she'll sometimes get like um, Stella Lansing kind of effects, you know, where, where it's like, you have to, it, you won't see anything if you just look, but if you go like second by second and then half second by half second, you'll notice that there are these weird things kind of happening in the margins that don't make any sense. Anyway, we also, she, she also used like thermal and infrared devices, you know, so there's the stump that's in this er one area where she goes and looks and she calls it the, I, and as I say in the book, she calls it the Harry Potter stump just because it sort of looks like something that, that would be out of Harry Potter, you know, sort of like this mangled, you know, half stump, you know, that's sort of rotting a little bit. And um, they had had some different kinds of experiences there from time to time. And so they, that was one thing they always, when they went by, they would always sort of, you know, take a picture of it or look at it or whatever. So anyway, we were doing that. And I was actually kind of talking to Gail, who was, you know, about maybe 15 feet away from me on the road. And her friend had this handheld thermal reader, you know, it, it's sort of like a mini FLIR. It's kind of, you know, it'll pick up infrared or, or thermal signatures, either one. And so, um, all of a sudden she said, Oh my God, I have something. And so I turned towards her and I looked and she goes, look, and she showed me a signature on the screen. And that's what I took the photo of, you know, yeah. with my phone, you know, I took of, of, the, of that, but then she said, look. And so we, we, we looked towards it, towards the stump. And I actually have the real, the actual photograph of it that, it wouldn't reproduce in the, uh, in, in the book. So I didn't include it in the book, but you can see the stump and you know, it's a thermal image. It's, you see the stump. And, and as we watched, as we watched this, this thermal image, it was like, it, it looked actually like a little round ball. It looked like a, like a little orb, except you couldn't see it with your eyes. That was the thing physically you couldn't see it with your eyes, but it, it, it came out of the hollow of the stump and sort of came down the stump towards you, towards us. And then right in front of the stump, maybe about three or four feet from us, a few inches above the ground, it just hovered. Hmm. 
And you couldn't, again, you couldn't see it with the naked eye, but you could see it on the thermal um, thing. And then I noticed that there was, uh, there was like a little, um, a little plant that was growing next to it, like a little viney plant. I think it might've been poison ivy for all I know, you know, it was going there and it was just shaking just like this, just really fast. And, 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 uh, and, and, the, and it was completely still around, you know, where there wasn't a breeze anywhere. And I had been told by my Micmac teacher that if you ever see that, that means that there's a little person close, that that's one of the signals. And uh, in fact, he taught me several things. If you're doing offerings at different times, if the trees do this or the leaves do this, these are the kinds of things that are happening or, or, you know, your, your um, offering is being accepted in a certain way or, or whatever. Um, so anyway, I said, I said to the woman, I said, look, that plant. And I explained it to her and she was like, Oh, and I said, you know, we need to not be standing here. Yeah. And so I, I, get, I took some tobacco out and put some tobacco down in front of me. And I said, thank you for showing yourself. And, we, and I told her, we need to just back off. Don't turn her back to it. You know? No. So we, no. We, back, we backed off. And as soon as we could get away, she had taken a, you know, like a thermal um, shot of it. As soon as we backed off, we just were like, okay. We just, <laughs> you know, but, but that, I would say that that was sort of like, one of the more obvious possible instances of something like that. I have no idea what that was. It was kind of bizarre to see something registering and moving like towards you on a thermal thing, like an orb. It looks like an orb, very clearly defined, yeah. but you can't see it with your naked eye. That was very interesting. Well, of course they can walk invisibly, you know, just like fairies. And fairies don't like it when you can see them when they think they're invisible. So you did the absolute right thing to. Well, I, fi I, I figured it knew exactly what was going well, on. Well, yeah. You Clearly know, it, it did. But the, yeah. the old tradition in Ireland was if, if you saw them when you weren't supposed to, like if uh, oh, yeah. the fairy midwife with the ointment on her hand and accidentally rubbed her eye and then she could see the fairies and. When well, it was like the, it's like that woman who that other woman that I talk about who's traveling to Phoenicia and she saw the little man yeah. she, almost crossing the river uh, yes. crossing the road and and I, I think she it, it, that's what she said she said I don't think I was supposed to see him yeah and that's why he turned into a piece of wood yeah or or it looked like a piece of wood you know um, I was just traveling by that place. The other day, actually, I just went right by that same place where she saw that. So I, every time I drive by, by there, I think about that. It's, I'm going to see this little brown guy <laughs> come out. <laughs> this little brown guy with the brown hat come out, you know. Um, but it was, it's, I think that's a great story, too. It's like, you know, she's just driving along and this happens. And that's the way a lot of it is. Like the one, the one Bigfoot experience that I had. You know, I'd never had one before and wasn't expecting one and and didn't really know exactly what I thought about Bigfoot. It was uh, startling. It scared yeah. me, actually. It, I, I mean, yeah. it actually it actually kind of freaked me out because you don't expect it. And you think, um, you know, what the hell is this? And did I see what I thought I saw? And 
who's going to believe me because I everybody knows that I think about this weird crap all the time, <laughs> you know, yeah. does that make this a legitimate thing, you know? And, but yeah. I didn't even know that people saw those things in the Hudson Valley. But now, of course, as I say in the book, lots of people do. Yeah. Well, I mean, they even see them in England, which, you know, that to me, they don't have enough forests for it to be an actual physical creature. Do they? I don't think. <laughs> you know? Well, may, you know, it may or may not be um, associated with forests there yeah. in quite the same way. I don't know. You know, maybe he's maybe he's in search of a forest there. Yeah. Maybe he's, maybe he's remembering regrow. Remembering forests past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because there did used to be the great oak forests that were chopped down to make the navy. Yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> and your freaking armada. <laughs> <laughs> Not that like she didn't need the ships at that point, but but still. Yeah, but, but the truth is, is it was destroyed by a storm. So who cares? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. At least plant yeah. the oaks back. Like you, you could. They're planting acorns. them in. Oh, they're good. planting them in Scotland. That's excellent. Scotland oh, yeah. just rewilding now. Yes. That is, that is, they are That's reforesting bad. on purpose. Yeah, fabulous. Which fabulous. I just read that today, and I was like, oh my god, yes. <laughs> so all of those green mountains that look like they just have grass and heather and gorse and all of that on it, they're they're planting trees. That's great. No, because they lost they lost all that. And that yeah. You know. Yeah. It's like there's a reason why Scotland looks so desolate. It's like it is, you know, because they cut all their trees down. You know? Elizabeth needed a navy. <laughs> Come <Yeah>. on. <sighs> and Victoria needed one too. Yeah. Well, they're they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> they're dead let's have new trees thank you yeah, yeah. much rather have the trees they're, they're, they're dead trees are alive trees rock yep yeah and, and just and just I, I i will end my little thing about the trees here with um um this is something that i found out not too long ago and it's completely cool um you know the people who lived where i live now um, they were, uh, they, you know, we refer to them as the Esopus band of the Muncie and, um, but they referred to themselves, their name for themselves was Iliwi. And what that means in Muncie is we who take, we who take counsel only with the heart of the forest. That's what that oh, means. that's beautiful. Isn't that fabulous? I was like, oh God. That is a beautiful tribal name. A name excellent. for your people. Isn't that great? I like that. Well, thank you for coming and being with us. Sure. I hope I gave you gave you enough about the book and didn't blather on too much about it. No, no. It was captivating. It's fine. <laughs> it was okay. good. Okay. All right. All right. And I and I do recommend actually if you're interested in um, um, indigenous stuff in particular. Uh, Barbara Alice Mann is really, is she's really good. Um, she has bothered to look through a lot of historical records about uh, her. Her latest book is about the southeastern um, indigenous peoples uh, and uh, and the various uh, programs of removal 
and it's called Presidents by Massacre. And she goes, she goes through the history, basically, yeah. of, of the removal acts and, and the removal. And it's so it's really difficult to read, but it's all it's like it's all there in the historical record. Yeah, it's all yeah. there, you know, and uh, horrible. and nobody else is doing that. Nobody else is actually just going to hit through the historical record and saying, no, this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what your own historians at the time said happened, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and she's really sarcastic. Oh, good. Her writing is so good. It's captivating. She's so sarcastic. She's Excellent. just like, she's just like, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the only person doing this. So I'm going to do it. Good. <laughs> you know? Excellent. Yeah. My, my younger child, the 14 year old was, had to, had to write something about Andrew Jackson. My favorite. Oh, God. <laughs> Scum and, and said, can you tell me something good that he did? And I said, no, he died. <laughs> well, there's that. Okay. He died. He, died. Um, he, he was like, well, why do you hate him so much? I said, Indian Removal Act, Trail of Tears. He was like, okay, that's all you need to say. Well, and he also completely trashed our first national banking system. Which meant that we did not have a stable currency until 1914. Yep. So, so, screw, so screw him entirely. Yeah. Five times. He was just terrible. I mean, and he was... Andy a, was a, 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 as a person, a he was also terrible. Like he was just a, a piece of crap. Yeah, he was. He was a horrible, horrible man. I mean, he fought. I mean, he finally died. And I, the reason I say it like that is because he fought this duel, and he was injured in the duel, and he carried that injury with him, and and it would flare up from time to time. And finally, the infection from it killed him. It took. It, he lived with it for like I don't know thirty years or something. But that's what finally killed him. And like, well, thank God, finally. <laughs> <laughs> finally the, the, you know the bullet finally killed him it's like wow God. that's a long time to carry well yeah he, he lived with it for a long time evil yeah. never dies a, well no it does longer. eventually yes it, it does eventually if it's Thanks. in human form it will yes <laughs> yes it just takes longer than it should <laughs> for yes. some yes. yes yes for some people it's that's that's what we create cannons for to shoot them in space. You know? <laughs> you know? Shoot. I We're pacifists. We don't like cannon except for this one use. <laughs> and that one, that's a good one. <laughs> and, or, 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 or the creative use of the trebuchet, you know. Pew! Yes. <laughs> we even have a trebuchet here in Athens because my friend built one. So we usually oh, use the, it for pumpkins, but. Oh, yes. Well, I, was th I was thinking of the trebuchet and northern exposure that 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 flung the <laughs> piano. <laughs> you know, what I, mean? yes. <laughs> you know um, I don't know if Morgana remembers that, but. but <laughs> It's Not, it's actually yeah. I mean I mean northern exposure as a as a as as a as a weak cousin companion to Twin Peaks was was okay sometimes but that was one of its magical moments was when they yeah. built the when Chris built the trebuchet to fling the piano into the lake that was yep. pretty good that was pretty good 
Yeah. I'm sure the fish were like, what the hell? <laughs> I know. I know. Should never do those kinds of things, you know. But anyway, I should shut up now. See, I'm so tired that I'm just going to keep talking until you go ahead and shut up. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank and you. We hope to have you back sometime because you were a great deal of fun. So. Oh, good. I'm glad. Thank you. Uh, well, I am I am writing a blog um, on professorwham.com. So, you know, people can be amused or outraged by that at their leisure. <laughs> I will definitely put it in the show notes, <laughs> along with all the books that you mentioned from many Barbara of which Alice I will Matt. be buying. Yes. Yes. Which well, and the mount now the mound. Let me. I will say this about the mound book. The mound book is kind of hard to get. It's actually technically out of print, so you're going to be paying a little bit for it. Um, but it's the only book of its kind, and it, um, even though it's very wrenching to read, it's uh, it's it, it for Ohio in particular, the history of Ohio. It's really really important. Cool. I never mind spending money on books. I mind spending money on other things. Books are not one of them. I bet <laughs> they she, have it over at Alden. Oh, they probably yeah. do have it at Alden, which I can now well, access. And she also wrote a smaller book that is still in print called The Three Miamis. And it's it, it's about the Seneca in Ohio. So, and, and that's based on um, Seneca tradition. I mean, it's bolstered with, you know, Western historical stuff, but it's based right. on Seneca tradition. So excellent. Jack, so I will definitely look that one up too. Well, thank you very much. That's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6DJK67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.